0: Let us turn in our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 24. We're going to be looking at Luke's account of that Resurrection Sunday, the first Sunday upon Christ's resurrection. The song that I was singing in my car this morning was the song by Glad, the Easter song, which says, hear the bells ringing, they're singing that you can be born again. That's the message of the resurrection, that we are born again in Him, born to newness of life. And it is a message that needs to be shared the title in the bulletin today is Remembering the Words of Jesus. I, I have a simple goal, but it has multiple parts this morning, and that is I want us to not only remember the words of Jesus, I want us to believe the words of Jesus, and I want us to proclaim the words of Jesus. And we're going to see that this morning in Luke chapter 24. There's, there was no doubt many things going through the minds of Jesus' followers as These two days had passed from Good Friday evening over the Sabbath, that is Saturday, then into that first day of the week. Likely they were numb, not understanding what was taking place. Jesus had died on the cross. They had seen it. They had seen Him being placed in Joseph's tomb, and they hadn't even had time to prepare His body as the Sabbath was approaching, and therefore the body was quickly wrapped in linen cloths and placed in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And they, being observers of Jewish law, did not wrap his body on the Sabbath, for that was a day of rest, as we hear at the end of chapter 23, and then we'll pick it up there in the beginning of chapter 24. Listen to the Word of God this morning. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, the women, went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. At what had happened. This is the Word of God. May he add his blessing to the reading and proclamation of this morning. Dear people of God, as we've been studying the book of Luke together, what we've noticed is that Jesus is front and center in all of the accounts in the gospel. He is casting out demons, he is healing, he is teaching, he's rebuking the religious leaders, calming storms giving parables, calling disciples. What many have noted is that here in these opening verses of Luke 24, he's absent, he's not here. Of all the places where you would, might expect Jesus to appear front and center is right here on that first day of the week when Jesus has risen and he is not here. At least not bodily. Why? Why? Well, hold that question in your minds, and we're going to look at that together as we look at this account from Luke 24 the opening verses of the 24th chapter, Luke records many details. It's not as though he's leaving out details, as though he's rushing through the story. He tells, uh, he explains to us what they found. He explains uh, uh, earlier why they had not embalmed his body already because there was no time. The day, the hour was late on Good Friday. They had no time before he was taken off the cross, down from the cross, and placed in the tomb. Luke is giving us details He tells us the women got to the tomb. The stone is rolled away and they do not find his body. What is the explanation for the empty tomb? Well, there are many reasons given for that empty tomb. One of my personal favorites from the critics is they went to the wrong tomb. They just didn't know where Jesus was. Really? You have a loved one laying in the cemetery and you can't remember where they are. You see them place the body in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, but you can't find your way back. Highly unlikely. Others say that the disciples stole his body. That's what they told the soldiers to say. They even paid the money, Matthew tells us. Matthew 28. Just tell them the disciples stole His body. Others said that He wasn't really dead, that He was only unconscious, and that when He went in the, came to the coolness of the tomb, he, he woke up and He walked out after being crucified on a cross, after being whipped and beaten, and He simply just walked away. Now, John tells us that When the soldier pierced his side, blood and water came out. Death had already occurred, and this was a sign of that. And he says, I witness to this, that you might believe what has happened here. The point is this. The point I want to make is this. The empty tomb is not self-explanatory. People can come up with all kinds of ideas of what might account for an empty tomb. So what has to happen? There needs to be a reminder of what Jesus had said. A reminder of the promises given in the Old Testament Scriptures of that one who was to come. The women are there at the tomb. They're distraught, not surprisingly. Dead people don't walk out of their tombs when you go to the grave of your loved one and lay flowers to remember them. You don't come there expecting the grave to be empty, do you? And yet they come, and he is not there. They're frightened. The reality of death can overwhelm and challenge the witness of the Word, can't it? What we see militates against our faith when we lay a loved one in the grave. But we need to hear the Word, we need to be reminded of the Word because it's true. As the women sit there in stunned silence, two men stood with them in dazzling apparel. This reminded me of, of recently we had gone through the, 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 the Mount of Transfiguration account and the two men appeared with Jesus there on the mountain, Moses and Elijah, and we talked about what that represented, the law and the prophets, and that it represented the scriptures. And what were they doing? They were speaking with Jesus, discussing his coming exodus, what he was come to do, And we saw that the Scriptures were testifying that Jesus was the one to come to fulfill all that God has promised. Well, here, as the women are at the tomb, two angels appear and the women are now not only perplexed, but terrified. Children angels aren't cute little cuddly creatures. They're terrifying. Anytime we see them appear in the Scriptures, people fall down out of fear. And yet these messengers came with the good news that Jesus was risen. The women are perplexed, verse 4 says, utterly beside themselves, is how one uh, commentator translates the Greek here, utterly beside themselves. But the perplexity was soon to shift from the women to the angels. They come to the women and, they, and the women are standing there and, the, and the, the angels say to them, what are you doing here? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember, remember how He told you while He was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Remember. When you are grieving, when you're facing hardships, remember. Everything has changed as a result of this event. The angels are baffled that the women are baffled. Don't you remember what he said? Often our perplexity has its root in the fact that we don't remember what God has said. We take our eyes off of him, don't we? And we don't remember who he is, what he has promised. And all we do is watch the news or read the little blurbs that come on our phone. And then we place all of the problems in front of us and look at our limited abilities and focus on our understanding and we forget that we're not listening to him. And remembering. The words of Psalm 42 come to mind. The psalmist was there perplexed as he's looking at the world's attacks upon him. He's wrestling with his thoughts, and he, the, he writes, The enemy says, Where is your God? And the psalmist says, ah, Yes, where is he? And, and then he says, I rem- And then I remembered. He says, I remembered. And he takes his thoughts in hand and says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. He is your salvation. And he says, I said to myself, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember the Lord as the great I am. Our world has become a very aggressive place, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, wanting to squelch any memory of what God has given. And we can become discouraged. It is good for us to gather for that very reason. It is good for us to gather every week in keeping with God's commands that we might remember. The absence of Jesus' body in the tomb should not have been a reason for sadness and dismay, but a reason for joy that what Jesus said really is true. He has risen. His words are fulfilled. And the angels simply say, remember Do not forget. Jesus did not need to be present for the women's joy to be full or for the rest of the disciples' joy to be full. Jesus does not need to be present for our joy to be full. What is necessary is for us to remember what he has done. We depend upon God, though, don't we, for that remembering and then next, the believing. We can remember, there are many who who admit that something strange happened way back 2,000 years ago. It's historically uh, recorded, but to believe what happened is that work that we depend upon God for. We see the women had all the facts. They were as close to Jesus as anyone could have been. Right there, as he's speaking in all those those three years of public ministry, along with the rest of the disciples, hearing it in person, and yet they can't put it together. We need to pray for that gift of seeing, that gift of faith. It is a gift. Well, back to the question that I asked at the outset, why doesn't Luke just simply put Jesus front and center? The first thing the women see is not the stone rolled away, not the empty tomb, but Jesus. Why? Well, Sinclair Ferguson has something to say to that. I think that's very helpful. He makes the point. For us to understand Luke's approach, we must remember his audience. His audience is Theophilus, if you remember the first chapter. And what has he done for Theophilus? He says, I have investigated all things that I might give you an orderly account so that you might know that what you have heard is true. Ferguson goes on, Luke had purposed to sit down and write an orderly account that Theophilus might have not have any reason to doubt that Jesus was who he said he was. Theophilus had the facts. He didn't need Jesus to appear to prove himself. What Theophilus needed was to believe what he had heard. In this case, what he had read. That it was now accomplished. You see, if Theophilus had been reading Luke's gospel very carefully... He wouldn't be perplexed by an empty tomb, right? Jesus said, I'm going to die, and on the third day, I won't, my body won't be there anymore. Do you believe that? that that's, what, that's what God is saying, asking you today. Do you believe that? And if you do, it makes all the difference in the way you live your life. We're going to look at that under the third point. We're told that without faith, it's impossible to please God. God doesn't care how much you know. God wants you to trust Him. To hold on to His words as that most precious of treasure. To hold on to His Son by faith that you might know deliverance from your sin and from death unto everlasting life. The devils believe there's a God. They shudder. There are many who say today, well, I've I've, I've heard the story. I know the details. I I see people Posting Happy Easter and they don't have any idea what it's about. They think it's about bunnies and egg hunts and all the rest. What, what the Word tells us is that we read this that we might believe. Listen to what the writers the new testament writers say after they have reflected upon this john in his gospel declares i've written or in his epistle rather says i've written these things all that in first john that you might believe and in believing you might have life in christ's name life to come and life now that you might live it to the full as jesus says john chapter 10 without fear because if you remember Jesus' words and believe Jesus' words, John says, in the Gospel, Jesus said, "In this world you're going to have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome." Phil Reichen states it this way, until we believe in the word of God, life is all too perplexing. But when we do believe, everything starts to fall into place. We could really unpack that statement and see how it's true in the scriptures. But, but just, just those, those two examples from 1 John 5 and from John 16, where the writers say, this is recorded that you might be transformed. That life might start to make sense. Why is the world such a mess? Oh, it's those other people. No, it's my sin. It's your sin. It's the fall that has created this. How is it going to be transformed? Will it be transformed? Oh, yes, indeed it will. For Christ has overcome God gives His Word, not just for information, but that we might believe. Blessed is the one who has not seen and yet believes. The Spirit of God gives love, joy, faith, Peter says that, so that though we have not seen Him, yet we love Him and have a joy inexpressible. That doesn't mean we don't talk about it. It just means it's, it's beyond our comprehension how we can, how we can, can, can be connected to Christ and, and know that newness of life. In Christ, we are filled with a... Contagious joy and a solid faith and a certain hope. So we remember, we believe, and we profess. The women, when they remembered his word, went and told the others. We're not, going to, we're not going to track back and see that they had trouble believing. We've already talked about that. Belief is not something we muster up. It's something God must give. We're not going there. We're moving forward. They told them, and Peter goes to investigate, and he marvels at the empty tomb. And then we see what a transformation it makes in his life. We can look at his epistles. But the point I want to focus on with you and, our, and the remainder of our time here this morning, is that we testify to this. We witness to this. This is our call. Someone said to me before the service this morning, you've got the best job in the world. You get to tell the glorious news of the resurrection. And I said, yes, amen. And then I thought, we all have that joyful task. We all have that wonderful calling. And we need to do it. Everywhere. The gospel has the power to bring a new affection. To give us ears to hear what God is saying. That the spirit might take that word planted in our hearts. That it might bear much fruit. We're called to tell others what we have seen and heard. God stirred the women with a reminder of the word and they went to tell the others. They didn't think, well, I know my Reformed theology and I know that I can't convert anybody so I guess and it's all about election so maybe I shouldn't really say anything. If those guys are elect, they're going to be saved. They went and they proclaimed because they knew how the truth had now opened their eyes and given them new life and they said, you need to hear this. Friends, it's not ours to convert, but it is ours to tell. There's a sweeping movement in this country and around the world today which is dead set to suppress the truth in unrighteousness anywhere, everywhere, all the time. And the light, the beacon of light is believers proclaiming the truth speaking truth into darkness as the angels of light shone their light into that dark tomb and revealed the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection. Behind this movement that is motivated to take our children from us from younger and younger age to indoctrinate them from earlier and earlier years into a new way of looking at the world, into a new way of seeing things, that is what is behind, that, that is the, that's, that's what drives this movement. They want to remove all of Scripture's testimony from Genesis to Revelation. from the minds of that next generation and one person has said or many people have said it the church is one generation away from extinction what does that mean that means if we don't tell our children they're going to get it from the world 24/7 and when you hand them one of those little devices that supposedly supposedly only gets phone calls you're welcoming the world into their life 24/7 unless you are setting boundaries and and speaking to them about what they're seeing and what they're hearing it's why this group talks about parental rights in quotation marks as though this was something ludicrous or even wicked while well, those parental rights that we have to get rid of when indeed God has said that is how i have designed the world that parents would instruct their children in the faith We're told the society has the sole right to teach our children, to train them. We're told that that the UN is considering new rights, new children's rights against their parents, because after all, we need to leave give them the rights that they deserve. Setting out a new charter that everyone is supposed to bow the knee to. Now this isn't anything new. It's been happening since the very beginning, hasn't it? There's two kingdoms. Two kingdoms at war. Satan lies and tries to take as many away as he possibly can. And God assures us that he will preserve and protect as we obey, as we hear his word and impart it that faith might grab hold of the truth. Came across this quote from Alistair Begg. The Bible talks in terms of He didn't add a term, but of opposites, I'll put it there. The Bible talks in terms of opposites: life, death, truth, error, broad, narrow, slave, free, hot, cold, God, Satan, sheep, goats, heaven, hell. There are only two groups. Our parentage is either divine or diabolical. There aren't somewhere in between, ah, you know, Christianity, I don't know, I just don't really care. That means you're saying no to the only path to life. And that's exactly what the culture is trying to get us to say and what it's trying to get our children to say. Ah, you know, Christianity, whatever. You practice it, but you do it quietly and you do it privately there on Sunday. But then when you leave the church, don't, don't talk about this resurrection nonsense. What difference does it make anyway, if someone who cares if somebody rose again 2,000 years ago doesn't affect me? all that affects me is the next little tweet I'm going to get. That's the mentality. We must be aware that our fight is not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers, not against a particular politician, a state education chairperson, a school board as harmful as they can be. We're at war with Satan. And we have no strength against him. We have no weapon that can stand other than the truth. He hates it. He knows what the Word can do. He knows how God can use it to change lives and to transform and to make new communities resurrection communities those who no longer live in sin but live in the light of life, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who live like those words that we read in Hebrews chapter 13, who are faithful, who are pure, who are doing good, who are remembering others, who are serving, because we are different in Christ, we have been made new. Our identity is child of God. Satan hates the message of the empty tomb. For it speaks of victory. And he knows the power of that message. So he wants to distract and discourage. He wants us to keep our eyes focused on the news and what it's saying, upon our neighbor and what he or she might be doing, and thinking, what's it all worth anyway? If I were to ask you, do you disagree with the present educational attempts to force children to adopt new critical theory, I don't think I have to guess at what your response might be to that question. Yes, we absolutely are opposed to that. If I were to ask you, are you complicit in the attempts of the world to secularize your children, I'm I'm convinced you'd say, no, 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 we don't want anything to do with it. And yet if I asked you are you teaching your children daily the word of God in devotion? Are you catechizing? Are you teaching them the right that is so regularly daily being suppressed? I'm fearful of the answer that I would receive. Well you know we're busy. We have lots to do. I don't want to leave that note in front of us. I want the resurrection to be so central to us that we say, well, of course we're going to talk about that. Why wouldn't we? Every day. And that is my encouragement to you today. And every day, teach your children the truth of God. All the time. Beloved, the attitude of apathy is an opportunity for the devil. When they're not hearing the truth from you, they're hearing and believing what the world says. And it's 24-7 around them. I don't mean to say that they are not influenced by the Spirit, but I'm saying the influence that is out there, the majority of the influence, is happening apart from your oversight. So you must pray. But you must take opportunity for those moments when you can speak the truth and live it out before them so that they might see that indeed this resurrection message makes a difference. We don't let others disciple our children. We want them, years from now, to say, when we ask them about their faith journey, you know, I don't remember a day when my parents didn't talk about the Lord Jesus Christ to me. And about the difference that it makes. I don't remember a day where they weren't repenting of sin because they were different they acknowledged that they didn't do it all right they acknowledged that they had guilt but they knew where to take it and they taught me that I need to go to the cross and that in the cross there is connected to it an empty tomb because it's been paid in full that is my guilt it is the vows we take in baptism it is the vows that we take as parents and as congregation. Will you instruct, teach, encourage? And we say we do, God helping us. There's a battle going on. There's politics here in this empty tomb. Oh boy, the pastor's going to talk politics. Don't bring politics into the pulpit, pastor. Well, this week I heard something very helpful from one of my favorite podcasts, and he said there's politics in the empty tomb. The politics is this. There's a kingdom coming because Christ is one. The tomb is empty, and there's politics there, and Satan knows it. He knows that his days are short. And so he's grabbing and grasping for all that he can get his hands on for as much as the Lord permits. He is not sovereign unto himself, but he's reaching as much as he can. And God says, I've given you all that you need to be protected. Will you use it? I'm going to move from Luke all the way to Revelation. I'm not going to start preaching on Revelation or we'll be here a long time. But I want you to hear these words. This is the end. We've heard this newness. Now listen to the end, Revelation chapter 1. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Oh, there's going to be suffering. Yep, hear about it tonight when you come back because I'm going to be talking about it. He was there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus because he spoke about it. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. And John continued in his Revelation, verse chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, brothers and sisters that is what Christ has done in the resurrection he has made all things new ushering in the last days in preparation for the coming age when all will bow the knee you see the politics of the empty tomb oh there's a king all right But he doesn't live at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. He doesn't live at 10 Downing Street. He doesn't live in Beijing. He doesn't live in Moscow. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he's coming again. To give life to all those who long for his appearing. Is that you? Do you long for his appearing? Does that... Does that truth make a difference and change the way you look at things, the way you evaluate the news, the way that you speak to your children, the way you love your wife, the way you live in purity as a single person? Does it, is it, is it new? Because that's what remembering, believing, and witnessing leads to. By God's grace, it is the testimony of a new life in Jesus Christ who indeed is risen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word that you preserve, that infallible, inerrant word. We are so supported by your spirit, to look into that word, to see, to know the truth, to see and to know the words of life. Lead us to greater and greater faith in this faithless age. Lead us to bold witness that others might be rescued from the darkness. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. While the choir returns to their seats, we'll be turning to number 356 in our hymnals, number 356, Come ye faithful, raise the strain. That is what the Word does, what the Spirit works in us. Come ye faithful, raise the strain of triumphant gladness. God hath brought us His Israel into joy from sadness. Loosed from Pharaoh's bitter yoke, Jacob's sons and daughters led them with unmoistened foot through the Red Sea waters. God brings us through the judgment because of what he's done in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to stand to sing the five stanzas, number 356. Let's pray for the morning offering. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to bring that message to those immediately before us and to the ends of the earth. We thank you for Reform Mission Services. We pray that you would bless their efforts even in this month as they clean up after tornadoes in Kentucky from last year. We pray that you would give them workers, that you would also provide them funds. As we give, we offer up prayers that their deeds might give opportunity for word to be spoken about Christ and the hope they have in him. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.